This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of March 2nd, 2015, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 217 of Defender Radio. How do beavers revive watersheds and help combat climate change? Those were the questions poised to experts and advocates at the recent State of the Beaver Conference in Oregon. Hosted by the South Umpqua Rural Community Partnership, the 2015 State of the Beaver Conference brought together a slew of experts, from advocates to flow device experts like Mike Callahan and geography professors to in-the-field ecologists. Included in that lineup was Dr. Heidi Perryman, a friend of the fur bears and the advocate behind the Worth a Damn podcast and blog at martinasbeavers.org. Heidi joined Defender Radio to discuss the pressing issues presented at the conference, the lessons learned, and what it all means for the future of beavers in North America and abroad. Let's start out and talk a bit about the conference itself. So this was the State of the Beaver uh, Conference, which is a new annual uh, event. Biannual. Biannual. Every two years, the first two, there was a 2010 and a 2011, but after that, they decided to do every two years. Okay, and uh, can you tell me a bit about why this conference came to be? Well, I think they really wanted for um, people who were doing important work about beaver research and the research on beaver benefits to be able to talk to each other from disparate locations. Now, um, Oregon and Washington are probably the most progressive beaver states in the country of the United States. So um, they know a lot more than we do, but um, they uh, did some reaching out and we kind of been gradually uh, gleaning some of what they have to offer. So, um, so I, I was involved in the first, the first one I attended was 2011. And, um, and at that time, it was, you know, not very many states involved, not a lot of agency people, because, uh, all the agencies like Fish and Game and, um, the water agencies in Oregon are very interested in beaver. But um, at this time, I would say that there are many more states involved, um, even countries involved, and people interested in a broad range of beaver aspects, beaver services, if you will. All right. And uh, the, can you tell me what the theme of this conference was? What, what were you looking at over the three days? Well, uh, I just realized I forgot the, the stated theme, but, um, the, there were, the conferences were, the conference was specifically, um, looking at all different aspects of beaver benefits. So, uh, but one thing that was more pronounced this year than ever before was beavers and climate change, specifically on beavers and their ability to save water and how important water services are going to become 
all over the West, all over the world, really, as climate change gets worse. Yeah, and that's something you and I both attended a uh, webinar about a couple of weeks ago, and it, it was absolutely fascinating. I had no idea that beavers could play such a vital role in something like that. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that that is really one of the ways that people are starting to think about, you know, we get a limited number of water from the sky ounces of water from the sky and there are these creatures that are better at saving water than anything on the planet and they've been doing it for millions of years they work 24 hours a day for free and they're engineers and so why don't we let them do it more why don't we accommodate um the things that inconvenience us and control them without removing the beavers. And speaking of removing the beavers, one of the things that was talked about were solutions to living with beavers, uh, from flow devices through to education. What were your your takeaways from that section? Well, I, I think that um, there was really an interest in understanding uh, how to make reasonable solutions with landowners to allow beavers to stay and do what they do, but also to control um, any damage they might be causing. And so um, flow devices are fairly well understood in certain parts of the United States. I wouldn't say in all, by all means. They're certainly beginning to be thought about in um, England and Scotland, where they're beginning to deal with beavers. And um, so it was very interesting to see these reliable tools that we have used for a number of years that we used in Martinez for the last decade, that um, to see them being approached by other regions and um, agencies. Right, and uh, l- looking again at the the websites, uh, which people will be able to find on the blog associated with this podcast, uh, a couple of the other things that came up, uh, one of which is stream restoration in beavers, and this plays into, again, the, uh, the climate change discussion that we both took part in. Um, could you summarize, maybe, why beavers are maybe a more ideal candidate for looking at stream restoration as opposed to... Uh, as it's stated on the website, billions of dollars trying to do it. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, all all cities all over the country and all over Canada have, um, you know, treated our creeks fairly roughly for the last uh, 50 years. We have concretized, we have made impervious, surfaces and we have really uh, limited where streams can go and how they can uh, behave because we wanted to build as many places as as quickly as possible and um, we could spend infinite amounts of dollars restoring our creeks to make them uh, better and more sustainable at this point but most cities I would I would speculate in everywhere aren't made of money to spend on our creeks and beavers will do this work for free even in urban cities which has been uh, one of the things that was particularly interesting to me in the conference it's the first time I've heard people talk and be interested in urban beavers Um, even in cities uh, beavers are 
increasing um, the wildlife, they're increasing the fish population, they are restoring the stream uh, with the work that they do. And they do this because the dam is trapping sediment and organic material and that gets broken down by tiny bugs that we can't see. And also beavers are constantly moving and removing mud. So this means that the pond floor of a beaver pond has several different elevations in it. And these different elevations attract different bugs. And different bugs mean different things that eat bugs. So we end up with new species of fish, new species of birds, new species of insects every place a beaver decides to build a dam. And if we can accommodate those dams, we can control them the way we need to for our city structures, then we get the benefit of that dam and all that wildlife. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. I am Brad Gates, owner of Gates Wildlife Control. Do you have raccoons or squirrels living in your attic? Did you know that the hole in your roof is letting water in? Your insulation is being ruined and they could be chewing on your electrical wiring? Protect your biggest investment. We will come to your house and provide you with a no obligation free estimate. Please visit our website at gateswildlifecontrol.com or dial 416-750-9453. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America's song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing keystone species. Beaver dams help clean water, promote songbird diversity, encourage fish populations, and create better soil and a cleaner environment. Beavers are good for Canada, but will we be good to them? Find out more at FurBearerDefenders.com and give a damn about beavers. This is Defender Radio. We're back with more from Heidi Perryman discussing her time at the recent State of the Beaver Conference in Oregon. Something that we hear regularly, um, which which you've touched on a little bit now, is the the issue of fish passages when flow devices are involved. Um, it's it's something that people who oppose the use of flow devices will frequently bring up. But I'm seeing um, the the discussion showing that. Uh, changes in flow device design have led to salmon passage and juvenile salmonoids migrating over beaver dams with little difficulty. Um, yeah, well, um, this is a particular area of, you know, very uh, specialized research, which isn't, there is a broader discussion about whether salmon can navigate beaver dams, and that is generally uh, a concern for lots of people who haven't looked at the research and who haven't done the reading on this subject. So the research out of NOAA is absolutely beavers can um, can benefit salmon. And in fact, what we see is that uh, beaver ponds create 
more space for juvenile salmonids to grow up and get fat and get healthy before they go out to sea. So that's one issue. The second subset of that issue is that when when we decide to live with beavers and install a flow device, does the flow device affect the passage of salmon? And um, and so within that subset of this topic, there has been specific work on flow devices to adapt to salmon passage, and that is done by Mike Callahan, and um, he's doing it with the Sonoma uh, Council that is looking at specifically uh, how salmon coho are managing specific flow devices, adapting them so that salmon can make it up the beaver dam easily. All right. And one of the other ones I wanted to touch on specifically with you, because I feel that it may be uh, uh, closer to home, is the dealing with drought subject. Um, now, that's something you and I have touched on before via email, via podcasts and blogs. Uh, in California, specifically California, you've been dealing with some pretty serious dryness over the last decade, right. I would say. Uh, yeah. It's causing some big issues. And one of the obvious things is bring in beavers, let them build dams, build ponds, and so on. And my understanding from the last time we spoke is currently you're not allowed to do that. Correct. That relocation is not legal in California. And honestly, my favorite part of the conference this year was um, there was a great deal of discussion about relocation from the other states that allow it, like Oregon and Idaho and Colorado. But um, but one of the things that I liked so much is that people were talking about beaver relocation and they said, you know, honestly, the best kind of beaver relocation is allowing the beavers to relocate themselves and not killing them when they do. And that really is um, an aspect of the education process that really comes from teaching cities that even if beavers move into a creek where you didn't expect them and you don't anticipate being able to cooperate with them, there are existing tools that are very well understood that can allow you to solve those problems and let the beavers live there. And there are tons of reasons why you should do that, not only because of education and opportunities for kids to learn, but also for wildlife and restoration and water storage. You know, our creek has not gone dry this year, unlike uh, many other years and many other creeks. And think about there are 482 municipalities in California, and what if all those other cities were also living with beaver? What would our what would our water storage look it's like? It's pretty remarkable when you try and put it on that scale. Um, 482 uh, uh, <laughs> municipalities all saying, you know what, let's do this. Would that solve the problem outright? Would it make it better? I think it's definitely something. Well, it certainly would make it. Better. I mean, beavers don't create water. They can't make it rain, but it would certainly, uh, one of the things we're going to have to get better at doing is taking advantage of the water on the ground and not letting it slip away through sewers and drains and slip out to the sea, holding on to it as long as we can. And beavers can certainly teach us about that. You know, I I just have a very short story about this. Um, I have a friend who's watching a beaver 
that's been kind of relocated himself into the really dry creeks of San Jose, the Guadalupe River. And um, he's in this section where the creek has almost totally dried out. And the beaver itself is living in a pipe that has a leak in it. And that beaver has decided, okay, it's this tiny leak, but I'll make do. So he's built a dam around this leak. And not only has he created this little tiny pond in the middle of nothing, where there's huge expanses of bare gravel because the water has all dried up, he actually recently decided to mark this territory. And the person I was talking to was a little concerned about this marking, like, does it mean the beaver's sick or something? And I explained that it's not that the beaver's sick. He's marking this territory because the habitat he's creating is so special. He doesn't want any other beavers to come move in. Um, so, I mean, I really think that is a very small-scale example of the fact that we could take an area that is totally dry, and these guys could totally change that. You know, beavers were the first animals to recruit after, to re, to reintroduce themselves after the explosion at Mount St. Helens. They were uh, among the first animals to restore, uh, they moved into Chernobyl after the nuclear explosion. And they kind of have created this oasis of wildlife where people won't go because of the nuclear exposure, but Beavers don't know anything about that, and they are recolonizing. So these are very hardy animals that um, really know how to live with very small bits of water, and we could all learn a lot about that. Absolutely. And one of the things I think is, is very interesting is there was a, a subject here uh, called Citizen Science and Advocacy, uh, and that's something that um, uh, you and I both have come up against is people saying, well, where are the studies? Well, the studies are now starting to circulate, but our ability to point to those studies and talk about them, I think, is is very much what's going to be important next. Uh, what was that portion of the conference like? Did, did you learn much? I think that was a really important portion of the conference, and one aspect that I think is new, which is that I think there have been um, good science on this issue uh, in the past, but I think that there was more discussion about the failure for people to be able to um, talk about that good science and being able to kind of use the vocabulary from the good science to reach out. And, um, you know, there was an understanding, I think, beginning that um, science is going to change this problem that uh, really it's all about communication and telling stories. And you want the science to be able to back up those stories, but you also really want to be able to deliver your message in a way that it can be received. And I think that was much, um, much more a focus than it ever has been. That was interesting to me. Excellent. Um, and the final question, and of course, given your, your full-time profession, I have to ask, how did you feel um, after this conference at the end of the day on February 20th? Uh, and what was the general mood like after the three days? Uh, I think 
you know, I, I think that's a great question. And um, I will say that I felt really inspired, but also um, really encouraged. You know, in the last couple of conferences, there has been an element of frustration for me personally, because I think there was so much focus on the benefits that beavers could bring and not so much interest in the beavers themselves. There was more uh, science and less advocacy. And I would say that um, at this point there is a, a real basis, a real base of communication around advocacy. And I was very encouraged by that. I was very um, in, in, in happy to think that other people were thinking about this. I even had a geology student from Minnesota come up to me and say, you know, I'm really interested in the topic of urban beavers and I can't find anything written about this. And that has just never, ever uh, happened before. It really was a different climate and a different level of communication and understanding. Um, you know, the other exciting thing that happened was that we got to talk to um, Devin Gao from from uh, excuse me Derek Gao from Devon, uh, England, and um, they're encountering their first beaver sightings after 600 years of extinction, and so they're all kind of reacting to whether the whether the country can tolerate living with beavers again or whether they need to make them re-extinct. And they've really had tremendous public support regarding these beavers. And so it was great to be able to hear from him and hear about the excitement in the community. To learn more about the State of the Beaver Conference, visit surcp.org forward slash beavers. To get in touch with Heidi or read more about her work, visit martinasbeavers.org. That's all the time we have for this week. I'd like to thank Dr. Heidi Perryman for lending her time, as well as Brad Gates of AAA Gates Wildlife Control for his ongoing support of this program. Until next time, this is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.